Welcome to episode 142. Today, Dr. Corinne Seals explains why the term native language speaker should never be used again. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. For years, I have used the term native speaker to talk about my students, my colleagues, and myself. I did not once stop to question the root of this term. I saw people using it freely, so I assumed it was appropriate. Little did I know how it is a term that perpetuates deficit thinking in students and minoritized people. In this stirring conversation, Dr. Seals will share the racist history of this term and its reaching implications into today's classrooms. We'll also talk about what we can do to speak in a more assets-based approach when we're talking about our students. Now, on to today's podcast. I'm so excited and honored to have Dr. Corinne Seals on the podcast. Last year in August in 2021, I was reading this article called Language Matters. The native speaker label has a problematic history. You had me at the title and I knew instantly that I had to have you on the podcast. Dr. Seals, kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor to have you. Would you start us off with giving us a, con- a brief context of where you are right now? Of course. So um, at this literal exact moment, I am at home in my home office, um, but I live in Wellington in Aotearoa, New Zealand. So Aotearoa being the indigenous rightful name of the land that we're in and New Zealand being its more commonly known name internationally. I love that. It's very um, reminiscent of the Canadians who, when they start a presentation at schools, they start off with talking about the land acknowledgement. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's And here, it's the same. We do try to always begin with some sort of acknowledgement of the land. And so, like I mentioned, Aotearoa is rightfully the land of the indigenous Maori people. And in particular, um, I'm right now in the land of Atiawa. And um, so I recognize the, that iwi and their rights over the land I'm in. Would you tell us, tell us about your work context? Of course. So I am a senior lecturer of applied linguistics at Te Herangawaka, Victoria University of Wellington. And there um, I am very fortunate to get to work in areas of my passion. So my focus is on uh, qualitative research, specifically in the areas of uh, heritage language acquisition and maintenance and language and identity overall. And I get to work with a lot of really fantastic teachers in training who come and study critical pedagogy and (laughs) critical approaches to uh, language teaching and learning generally with me as well as methodology. So um, that's my my general context. Can you share with us a story that from your practice that has really informed your craft today? Yeah, so um, the story I always go back to that kind of informs everything I do now and that motivated everything I do now, um, it goes back quite a while, <laughs> while. It goes back to when I was growing up. So I grew up in California My mom is Ukrainian, and so I grew up Ukrainian-American. And um, when I was growing up, we were raised very much speaking English and Spanish. There was very little Ukrainian anything around because I had that classic experience of, um, you know, being as 
seen as American as possible <laughs> when your parents are from elsewhere. And um, so, but I did always see the Ukrainian things around and was very aware of the Ukrainian traditions and what we were also missing out on as well. Um, and so when I was growing up further, then I entered university and started learning, trying to learn Ukrainian uh, more as a heritage language speaker and found so few places taught Ukrainian. And instead we, myself and other Ukrainian students were often told, um, nope, you have to learn Russian instead because it's the more important language. And um, as we can see now, people are more aware of the situation in Ukraine now and why that's so problematic. But at the time there wasn't a lot of awareness around that. And so we would all get lumped together as being called Russian. And that erasure of identity and um, just constant internal conflict of between languages and heritage and identity and all of that made me want to get more into that, understand that more. And then also being a heritage language learner and speaker and um, being told, especially at conferences, that I spoke wrong and I didn't speak right, I didn't speak clean. And finding out that that was so common amongst heritage language speakers and learners to be told that. And just um, wanting to get more into that to empower people, empower heritage speakers more, empower people in their own language and identity. That really has become the baseline now of everything I do. I wrote down two, work, two phrases, uh, language is political and teaching is political when you were sharing about, well, how, when you were made to not speak Ukrainian, like it's an erasing of your identity, right? And that's happening now. Uh, you also used the word heritage language several times. Can you talk about that intentional use of heritage language? Yes, so um, heritage language, is it has had different definitions over time. Um, in the book that I co-edited with a fabulous researcher and friend, uh, Dr. Sheena Shah, she and I talked for a while about which definition to take, and um, we edited a book on heritage language policies around the world. And so we consulted with a lot of colleagues, and in the end, we came up with a definition that draws upon Joshua Fishman's original definition, but um, that also takes into account current political context. So when I say heritage language, I'm referring to a language that someone is culturally connected to, through their, here in Aotearoa, we call it through their whakapapa, so through their um, extended historical lineage and that culture which they claim as their own that tells their story of who they are now. And so a heritage language comes from that story and comes from that background and it might be a couple generations removed, but what's important is that someone feels that cultural historical connection to that language and is motivated and invested in it through that and that they themselves self-identify as someone who has this deeper connection to the language. And oftentimes in today's world, because of globalization, it might mean that they don't have essential, uh, they don't necessarily have great proficiency in the language, but they have a deeper pragmatic understanding of uh, what's acceptable, what's not, and how it's used in that given cultural context. And um, cultural contexts, I should say, because I acknowledge that culture is not monolithic. Um, so, uh, for example, my, myself saying I'm a Ukrainian heritage language speaker, I didn't grow up with a lot of Ukrainian in the home, but I grew up with Ukrainian culture and music and art and pragmatics and I understood those things. So then when I went and started working on further developing my language skills, I already was able to, um, to more easily understand what's quote unquote appropriate or not when speaking the language in various contexts. And that's something that heritage language speakers usually share is that deeper understanding. Plus, as I mentioned, the higher motivation and higher investment because it has a personal identity connection. 
So that that specific label, heritage language, I believe is really important um, because it does speak to to the individual identity of the person and their their historical ties and connections to that language. I noticed you didn't use home language. Why is that? <laughs> um, so I didn't use home language because, as I mentioned, uh, the heritage language is not always the home language. And so um, it, oftentimes you will get people who their the heritage language may have been the home language for grandparents or great grandparents, but it's not the home language for them or home languages also, I'll say. Um, so some it is more of a a broad category, heritage languages, and it's more emphasis on individual agency in assigning that uh, that identity connection. So um, it has a different focus and heritage language speakers, by using the label heritage language, it also highlights the diversity of, um, of needs and of wants and of commitments that the speakers have. Dr. Kate uh, Seltzer shared that when we use the word home language, it automatically pins language to a place, a location. And it automatically means like, oh, you can't speak that language here at school because you're not at home. Sure, you could use that language at home, but not here at school. I agree with that. I think that she's spot on with that. Um, and, you know, it's when we focus on heritage language also, like I mentioned, since it is part of you, you carry it with you wherever you go. It is not tied to any particular domain. Right, right. Heritage is everywhere, not just exactly. at home. Right. Let's talk about your article with Language Matters. Can you talk about why contrasting native and non-native speaker is so problematic? Yeah, um, this is a really important point, and thank you for addressing this question directly. Um, so it, I know it's very common currently in research and in teaching to use this contrast of native speaker and non-native speaker, but um, it's actually what we would call a false dichotomy, right? So it sets up, and by false dichotomy, I mean, it's setting up what looks like a dichotomy that you have to choose between being a native speaker or a non-native speaker that you have to classify people as a native speaker or as a non-native speaker and that they're at odds with each other. But this is completely a gross oversimplification of the situation and of speakers' abilities and their experiences. And it often means that anyone who grows up multilingual or who achieves additional languages throughout their life or who comes from an immigrant background that they'll be put into this non-native speaker category, regardless of their language proficiency, of when they learn the language, of how many languages they speak. So it's, as I mentioned, a really gross oversimplification and it privileges those who are already in most societies already in positions of privilege, which are usually the monolingual speakers of the dominant societal language. And, um, it's also problematic because when we're talking about uh, the terms, you know, native speaker and non-native speaker, um, the term non-native speaker also treats language as static, as if it, it forgets about the fact that we develop language, language abilities, that we have shifting and changing linguistic repertoires, that we ourselves shift in our proficiencies across languages and varieties. It also ignores globalization and transnationalism and um, how many people in the world are moving and interacting with people from other places, other linguistic backgrounds, and that influences our own linguistic repertoire as well. Um, it also, in the classroom itself, when students are positioned as non-native speakers, it puts them in a, it positions them as deficient. And um, in that deficiency, it's really hard for students practically in a practical sense to then be able to build back out of that to being seen as proficient instead of deficient. And so it, it has that as well. It's also for teachers 
teachers are often asked to assign these labels to students, which can force teachers into a particular position where they're having to decide between this false dichotomy. And again, it um, carries with it a lot of ideologies that then subconsciously enter the teaching stream. And for teachers themselves who are labeled as quote unquote non-native speakers, it assumes that they have lower proficiency and lower ability to teach the language, which is absolutely absurd. Some of the best teachers I've ever met of languages have come to those languages as additional languages. And it's um, it has, when you came to that language is not one-to-one -one connected with your ability to teach it. The better teacher will always be the person who works harder, who knows their stuff better, and who invests in their students and teaches for their students' um, well-being and improvement. So it carries with it all of these connotations, this native speaker, non-native speaker, false dichotomy, all these connotations, all of these, that has all of these implications uh, in the real world, in school, in who gets positioned how. Um, so it's just, it makes the tick box system easier but it makes actual life and experience much more difficult. Oh, that was so good. It makes the system of teaching easier, check a box, but yes. it makes life harder for those who are living under that label. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely know one of the implications here uh, as an international school teacher, we have teachers from all over the world, but the ones who are usually hired are the Canadians, Americans, the Brits, Australians, and New Zealanders, yet the people from like, let's just say India or from Thailand or from Cambodia who have studied extensively the ins and outs of that language or who have scored the highest possible score on the IELTS test, still being given only local contract for English, even though on a test, I never had to take a test to prove that my English proficiency was uh, at, a, at an advanced level, at a quote-unquote native, because I had my passport. That was mm -hmm. the only test. But my colleagues who have, who can tell you with the present progressive and I can't, <laughs> they can tell you because they've studied it. Right? And yet they're not a quote-unquote language teacher. Yeah, that's absolutely the situation that right. I've seen over and over again. And it's just, it's terrible. And it does everyone a disservice, absolutely everyone. Right. I also think when when you hear the word non-native, I always also also think of the term accented English. Yeah. Because even though they speak English perfectly, because they have an accent, they be they are labeled non-native regardless of their proficiency. Yeah, absolutely. And then that also carries with it the the associated connotation of undesirable, right? And it's and that's it's absolutely ridiculous. Because like you said, and like I've seen as well, again and again and again, the people who tend to know better the grammar, the language instruction, the, um, you know, how to teach to the, to the metacognition of learning a language, all of those aspects, people who are better at it are usually people who are those who are then labeled as accented English speakers or non-native speakers, and they're in position as less desirable. Right. I would, in nine out of 10 cases, the vast majority of cases, I would most likely pick the person who was the, that, who was assigned as non-native speaker because they're going to nine times out of 10 have a better understanding than native speakers of these systems. I mean, I taught for a while grammar and language, but I had to go and learn it by myself <laughs> before I could teach it. So the assumption, you know, I had to learn it explicitly and take courses on it to be able to then teach it myself. So the assumption that a native speaker automatically knows how to do this is ridiculous, <laughs> absolutely ridiculous. So in the end, when we have the term non-native, it's really just a deficit mindset term. Yeah, it is. Uh, so when you use non-native speakers, like I mentioned, that the easiest all it's doing ease wise is for ticking boxes for filling out forms for people making very easy without thinking about it hiring decisions 
but it's a deficit perspective. It really uh, disadvantages the majority of the world speakers in hiring, in learning, in, um, in, sorry, in hiring, in learning, in all sorts of different avenues where people try to, to invest in themselves through language and raise their social capital. This label of non-native speaker is applied to people and is an automatic disadvantage and is really hard to then get past after it's been applied. So it is a way for the quote unquote native speakers to maintain the status quo of power and privilege. And even when people aren't consciously aware of that, that is what they're doing. And that is why it's then also so promoted within institutions uh, by people who hold that privilege themselves because it is it has a lot of power. We do everything in our lives through language by you know, thinking things through, by speaking to each other, by negotiating, by learning, by teaching. So to apply a deficit label to someone affects their whole life. It's a tool to control and a tool to yes. segregate and a, and a tool to show the hierarchy. Yeah, it is. And we also know that it's a colonial tool because uh, uh, so much indigenous research also recently has come out showing um, how the, the need to separate label, uh, assign labels that divide and that split people up and split things up, that is a purely colonial thing that is done. That is not something that is done in most indigenous cultures. Uh, most indigenous cultures are about harmony and about doing what will be best for the society. But colonial cultures are very, put very heavy emphasis on this label and divide and categorize. And so to use that in everyday practice as well and in high stakes practice is again, empowering those who come from that colonial background and empowering the status quo of those in those colonial societies. So it's doing the majority of people a disservice. So when we categorize, it's easier to manage and organize. And that's why they use that. Yes. Right. Yep, exactly. It's easier to manage, organize, and control. Right. Would you talk more about the historical context? You talked about um, that in the article. Yes. So I think it's really important for people to know where the terms native speaker, non-native speaker originate from, and also uh, this false dichotomy where it originates from, because a lot of people use it. They might listen to the things we've said so far and say, okay, but then still not see, or maybe not necessarily be entirely convinced about how problematic it truly is. So the roots of the native speaker, non-native speaker labels and false dichotomy were outlined in um, a really excellent paper by Dewale, Bach, and Ortega that was published in, um, uh, I believe, 2021. I believe it was published last year. And in that, they really dug into, okay, where does this come from? Because we know that this, this, uh, false dichotomy has been criticized by some major power players in the field. So it's not a new criticism. It was criticized by Holiday in 2015, by Ben Rampton in 1990, by Ferguson in 1983, and by Halliday all the way back to 1968. So Diwale, Bach, and Ortega asked, so what, where, if the criticisms are going that far back, where did this come from? And they found that it actually originated in 1858 in New York City as part of a campaign against immigrants. And the goal of it was to pit the so-called native Anglo-Saxon against all other immigrants. So it was a way for people who were part of that really racist ideology to join language to nationality and to race and ethnicity. And that was then continued to be used by language purists as a way to connect language to nation and race, as a way to still, to subjugate. 
So it has this very racist history that has continued to push it amongst those who take part in, in these, this racist propaganda, right? So that's why we get things like the English only movement in a lot of countries, including in the US. This is a huge aspect of what they do. Also talk about non-native speakers and how uh, non-native speakers need to learn English, speak English only, da 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 da. And um, it, that whole campaign is extremely racist. And it's the same sort of racist undertones that goes along with this entire false dichotomy. And often when people draw upon it, they're not aware of that. But because it has that underlying history and because it continues to be so useful to racist groups in promoting their messages, People need to aware that need to be aware that they're taking part in something that pushes a very racist, very problematic history and agenda when they use this non-native speaker, native speaker label. So um, that's for anyone who didn't know, that's where that came from. It's very important to know that every time you use these labels of native speaker, non-native speaker, you are drawing upon that very problematic, very racist history. Yeah, Dr. Jose Medina said, once you know, if you continue, you're complicit in the su uh, suppression. I agree. How can you possibly learn that, learn about that history, and then continue to use those labels without feeling all of that, that history of oppression that you're drawing upon in doing so? And that should also tell you that in using those labels, you are continuing a system of oppression because it comes from that. It's continued to be used by, uh, in that way by very racist campaigns. So it's a very active tool, a very easy tool for people to use to oppress. So once you know about that, I really challenge anyone to then listening to think about that closely and ask yourself if you're really comfortable in continuing to use these terms now. So what's the implication for teachers who use the this term and, and then what's the implication for students as well who are forced to be labeled this way? Yeah, so um, it's really difficult, I know, to resist a system that's so entrenched. But what's heartening is that as people are starting to become more aware of this, there is more uh, conscious language usage starting to come out. There is more discussion around what alternative terms are that could be used because this also recognizes that we're not going to be able to get past a colonizer system of labeling and categorizing in one day, right? That's not something easily done, especially when it's so many hundreds of years in place. So instead, what we can start doing is working together to find out how, how, to find out what would work for people in terms of how they would be referred to um, and how classes would be organized and in how students would be able to self-define. So one of the things that we've been doing here in Aotearoa and that I've been doing with my research students in particular is when they're conducting their PhDs, when they're conducting their master's students, right away we have a conversation about why they cannot use native speaker, non-native speaker as labels. And then we come up with alternative ideas and then they ask the teachers and students what works for them. And so far, one of the most popular has been to uh, refer to what language the students are learning in the classroom. Are they learning English? Well, what's it matter if they're native speakers or non-native speakers of other languages? Um, you know, are they learning French? Well, who cares what they're native speakers, non-native speakers of? Um, are they, if they're teachers, one of the things that my research students have started doing is uh, calling them multilingual teachers of English or monolingual teachers of English or bilingual teachers of English which then actually gives privilege to the speaking of multiple languages. 
So the teachers who are multilingual speakers of English, that's an excellent thing. That's a good thing. They bring a vast amount of resources, linguistic and cultural understanding with them to the teaching of that language. So it repositions the story and it gives emphasis and uh, privilege to those who have gone through the process of acquiring a lot more knowledge, linguistic and cultural knowledge, which is as it should be and as it is in any other subject, right? Those who spend the most time acquiring more knowledge of the area are seen as the better teachers of that subject and the more knowledgeable. So why should language be any different? Yeah, I think the field is moving towards more assets-based uh, perspectives and labeling. So they're calling yeah. students like uh, multilingual learners, where it, they're even move, moving the English part where it's saying, wait, let's honor your multilingualism. The fact that you are so good at learning languages. And it's so important. And, you know, we have all this research that shows us that people who are multilingual speakers are often better at acquiring new languages, that they often have greater working memory, that they um, have greater metacognitive abilities and more empathy and all sorts of, you know, there are so many different benefits to it. So it's right to then honor that by putting emphasis on the fact that they are multilingual. I, sometimes when I share this message, I, I will, and then I meet teachers who are uh, monolingual teachers. Um, they often say, well, I don't understand why English only is a problem. They're here to learn English. And then they'll say, and now it's moving to a little, little they're trying to move pro more progressive. They'll say, that's fine. They can use English they can use another language unless they're different students from different nationalities. So they'll all have to speak English. And then they'll, and then they'll say one more thing. They'll say, huh, but I also want them to speak English because I don't know what they're saying. Maybe they're bullying uh, each other. Yeah. Can you talk about those ideas? Yeah. So again, all of those ideas that you've just mentioned are used in to push this monolingual ideology. And often people who fall into repeating these messages don't realize that. And they repeat them because it's how they were brought up learning. It's what they've heard. It's what they're familiar with. And it also shows their fears. So one of the greatest ways to control people is to present a fear-based perspective. And so it's this fear-based perspective that people learn to then continue to share and draw upon. Now, that's one of the reasons why I love, love, love translanguaging research. And that's a huge aspect of what I do in my research. I run a research program, Translanguaging Aotearoa. I've run it since 2017. And we work with communities in partnership with communities to see how we might be able to, to integrate uh, a variety of language varieties and perspectives so that we're building up students' uh, multilingual repertoires and their abilities across a variety of languages and um, building on their, their transcultural awareness, their translingual abilities. And one of the reasons why I love translanguaging research so much is because it um, bats back a lot of these questions at teachers from the, who come from the monolingual perspective. And so when teachers say something like, well, what if I don't know the languages of the students in the classroom? Then translanguaging bats it back a bit, you know, and says, well, and asks, well, why do you need to know all of the languages that they speak as long as you're still able to communicate with them in the classroom? You know, and then when teachers say, well, I won't know what they're saying amongst each other. And then translanguaging bats it back and asks, well, are you always listening in on everything that all students say? Why do you need to know everything students are saying to each other. You know, that's really a controlling perspective. That's not a student-centric perspective. A student-centric perspective lets students use their resources that they have in learning. And so a lot of those resources are language. And so if students find that they're able to better build upon their linguistic repertoire by negotiating meaning in another language and then getting to the performance aspect in the target language, then all the better. And that has been shown actually 
to increase student ability and student performance, student learning, student retention. So it has heaps of benefits. So there's, um, there are all these benefits to be gained actually from multilingualism in the pers right. in the classroom. Right. I, I actually have never heard that perspective of saying batting back of saying like, oh, <laughs> so I, instead of me answering of me of me trying to prove to you, I'm going to simply ask you a question of saying, well, why do you think it's important to police brown and black kids? I love that that sort of batting back and putting back in the court. And I found that that's really, really important because it takes uh, it takes often minority speakers, minority groups off of the back foot and off of the defensive and instead says, I don't need to be in the defensive. I'm not doing anything wrong. You need to explain to me why you think that this is a question that needs to be answered. I've um, learned now that when I go back, when I share, it doesn't really help. I simply just say, so what I hear you saying is this, is that what you're saying? And they're like, oh, I didn't mean it that way. I'm like, well, that's how it sounds. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I have a number of um, colleagues here in Aotearoa who have a wonderful thing that they've taught me about that they do, which is um, when they're asked a question that is inappropriate, such as, you know, where are you from? Or, you know, why do you people do that or something? Then they say, oh, I'm sorry, I don't quite understand. What do you mean by you people? Could you explain that further to me? And then it brings that awareness of it, the inappropriacy up to the person who asked that. And it often makes that person really uncomfortable as they should be. Because as I mentioned early on, if you feel uncomfortable, it means you need to change things. So it brings that awareness. And I think that's really good. We need to, everyone who is advocating for social justice needs to stop feeling that they need to defend themselves. It's not a position that needs to be defended. Instead, the people who are against it need to get used to <laughs> defending their perspective if they feel it's that important. Right. Because then they, they get to go through the process. Yes, of, exactly. Of seeing like, wait, that's actually racist what I just said. Yeah, exactly. And I think that all these critical perspectives um, are really important for empowerment and uh, teaching. I like to teach my students and my multilingual communities I work with and minority communities. I like to have these conversations about this and uh, practice, you know, how would you ask that back in a way that doesn't make you feel threatened to ask but that does raise awareness in that other person and put them on the back foot instead. Right. Because now I'm realizing that silence is violence. And if we don't mm -hmm. speak up, we're, we're perpetuating that violence. Right? Yeah, that yeah, totally. Right. Yeah, and that's, you know, that's one of the things that I always tell my, um, my students and especially my research students who are from majority social groups. I always say, you have privilege and you have a lot of privilege. And the reason why you haven't necessarily thought about this before is because of your privilege. So you now have a responsibility to leverage as much of that privilege as you can in as many spaces as you can to support other people. And so that's a that's a very regular conversation in my office. <laughs> right, right. They need to be allies. Yes, exactly. Right. And they need to take the floor to then be able to pass the floor. Because they have so much privilege, they have a platform in that way. Mm -hmm. Exactly, and so they'll. It will often be very easy for them to take control of the floor, to take the mic, you know. But what's important is not to hold it, to then to pass it on to people for whom it's more difficult to have access to that mic. Right, right. They're starting the mic, but then they're passing it on so that other yes. voices can be heard. Exactly. Right. Can we can I ask you, let's return to that question of let's say that the teacher says, OK, it's English only is for inclusion or inclusion purposes. Let's say that there are like three students from or five students in a group and there two of them are from different countries, three of them from different countries. We want to use English because they all can be included together under the idea of inclusion. How do we address that? Yes. Yeah, so this is something that has come up in a number of my classes. Uh, that teachers do ask me, because again, it's how they've been taught, especially those from majority backgrounds have been taught that the inclusive way is to use one language. 
and it's to use often if you're in an uh, EMI classroom, it's to use English as the target language. Um, but it's really, it's absolutely not inclusive because what it's doing is it's saying, okay, those of you who are already highly proficient in that language or who uh, speak that as your only language, you are now allowed to draw upon all of or the vast majority of your linguistic resources to explain yourselves. While those of you who are uh, still developing your proficiency in the language, who speak multiple languages, you only get access to a fraction of your linguistic repertoire to explain yourselves. And I always present this to teachers who ask me that. And I say, for example, if you need to explain yourself in a different language, like usually I'll, I'll say to them something like German or French or, you know, another language that they're familiar with learning in a, in a language classroom. I'll say, okay, let's say you need to now explain your dreams, your hopes, your wishes, your family's background, your family's history, and uh, what you wish for other family members like nieces, nephews, siblings. Okay, you're only allowed to use that target language to do it. Versus you're allowed to use all of your linguistic repertoire to explain all of those feelings and all of those hopes, those dreams, all of that history. Now, which would you rather be able to use? <laughs> and often they go, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, it, it's the same sort of thing when people say, oh, no, well, only one language in the classroom. Well, that means that the people who have higher proficiency in that language already are going to be able to explain more of those hopes, those dreams, that history. People who have a lower proficiency are not going to be able to explain it, uh, little if at all. And um, one of my friends here in New Zealand, one of my Ukrainian friends, she said a great thing that I think really, really nails the explanation of this. She said, when I came here to New Zealand and I didn't speak very much English and people expected me to only speak English and would only interact with me in English, she said, I lost my personality. And she said, I lost my sense of humor. I lost my dreams, my hopes, all my ways of expressing myself. I was just a shell. I no longer had my personality. And that is so important to remember. And it just, I think that really speaks to the heart of it, that right. when there's the focus on this one target language, you're doing such a disservice to so many people. Right, because language is identity. And when we mm -hmm. silence language, we silence identity. And when, we, when someone says, oh, English in mass as inclusion, really is just privileging one. Yes. Right. One language and the, the group associated right. with that language. Yes. So thank you. <laughs> Who for don't need privileging? <laughs> no, exactly. It's just a, it's another word. It's an, it's another word of neo colonialism. Yes, it is. Right, right. You're silencing who the person that has less proficiency. Their voices are silenced, so you can be included. Yeah. Right. Ugh, I'm so fired up. <laughs> No, I always feel this way when I talk about everything, which is why I love that this is also that I'm so privileged to work in this space, right. to to use passion every day. Right. You know. Right. And it's not ang anger. It's more like no. This is a passion because we see this inequity and this injustice. We have yeah. to speak up for those who are being silenced and those kids exactly. who are being affected. Right. And it's channeling that passion into action. Right. And I think that that's a real privilege to be able to do that. Right. So. You're an expert in heritage language, so I have to take this opportunity to ask you, how do you integrate uh, heritage language acquisition to support um, English instruction or language instruction? Yeah, so a big way that I do that uh, is by, um, you know, in encouraging a lot of stuff that we've just talked about. Uh, so especially the translingual perspective. Um, so encouraging access for students to their heritage languages in in the classroom uh, you know and if we're talking about an EMI classroom access to the heritage languages in that English language space um, a lot of the time I work with teachers who find that one of the the most seamless ways to make their administration happy while also supporting students is to allow students to use their full linguistic repertoire in 
translanguaging, moving between languages dynamically while doing the rehearsal aspects of the, the tasks that they've been assigned. And then when it comes to performance, you know, they've had a chance to, to rehearse, to use their full linguistic repertoire to build up a, a, the end product that will be in the target language. And then when they perform that, it's in the target language. So they're still meeting the requirements that the administration have imposed, but they've been able to rehearse and discuss and have conversations about what they're doing and why they're doing it and all of that with their full linguistic repertoire. And that includes the heritage language. I also work a lot with uh, what translanguaging looks like in indigenous spaces where there is a big need to protect those heritage languages of indigenous communities. And um, this builds upon um, the work of Jason Sanos and Dirk Gorder, who looked at what they called sustainable translanguaging. So how do you use translanguaging in a way that still protects the rights of those minority communities? And so um, my colleague, Vinnie Olson-Reader and I have developed what we call socially responsive translanguaging which works with communities, side by side with communities to see what they want, what they need, and then draw upon principles of sustainable translanguaging to also make sure that we're protecting those minority languages while still giving uh, access for students to their full linguistic repertoire. So this is something we've gone into quite um, depth with but that the importance of it is that it is very centered with those communities and those communities tell us what they want. They tell us what their needs are and we work with them on that specifically. And that's um, the backbone of that is also, we, it's called Kaupapa Māori. It's a Māori research um, perspective and way of doing research that keeps all of research based in the community for the direct benefit of that community. And there, it's such amazing guiding principles and um, it really works so well when we're talking about all these critical aspects and uh, empowering students, supporting students, supporting communities. And that's also, that's what guides our perspective on socially responsive translanguaging. So I know I went in a lot of different directions with your question, but I have a lot of different answers. <laughs> Well, I'll, I'll speak to two of those things. The first thing you talked about was using uh, translanguaging and the act of rehearsal for the for whatever students are doing. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. exactly what Dr. Margot Gottlieb from WIDA shared in her book called Multilingual Assessments, Assessments in Multiple Languages, where students are, they have to produce English as the, as the, as the end product, but as they're moving through that process of getting to that mm -hmm. final product, they're using all of their language skills to read, to write, to research, to collaborate with others. And then the final product is going to be in all in English, right? Yeah. Yes, and that, you know, it still empowers students while also, like I said, meeting the criteria that a lot of people have to still meet from administration and from various language policies as well. Right. We'll have to get you back and your colleague to talk about it's a socially responsive, uh, sustaining. Socially responsive translanguaging. <laughs> yeah. I, wrote, I wrote that down. I was like, wait, did she say sustaining? So uh, thank you for that. But let's end the podcast with traffic light teaching. And traffic light teaching involves uh, something you would ask teachers to stop doing, continue doing, and start doing. So if red, stop, uh, continue doing yellow, and start doing green. Ooh, that's a good question. So um, red to stop doing, I would ask teachers to stop positioning students um, in deficient modes, whether intentional or not. Uh, just be more aware, stop doing it. Uh, to sustain doing would be to continue to encourage students to develop in the best ways that they can and to meet, uh, find out what their needs are and meet those needs which I'm sure most listeners of the podcast are already doing. And so I would encourage you to keep doing that and to keep students in the central focus. Um, and to start doing would be to start bringing students into the conversation more as also co-owners of the teaching space. 
to find out what sort of language works for them, what sort of practices work for them, and to brainstorm together on possible new approaches that might um, be worth giving a try to see what sorts of results it might bring about. Well, thank you for that podcast and also a tour of, how do you say New Zealand in Māori? Aotearoa. Aotearoa. And yeah, I, I yeah. think it's beautiful how a country with a, colon, a colonizing background is uh, addressing its past in this present way. So it's quite um, affirming the work that you're doing as a nation, but also you as an individual, Dr. Seals. So thank you again for being so gracious with your time and so inspirational with your message. Thank you for the invitation. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. What an eye-opening conversation with Dr. Corinne Seals. I did not know that the history of this term was used intentionally to classify with the purpose of subjugating immigrants in New York City in the 1900s. After reading Dr. Seals article and listening to this conversation, I cannot in good conscience continue to use this term as it explicitly communicates that multilingual students are not enough. Like Dr. Meyer Angelou beautifully said, do the best until you know better. And when you know better, do better. I also really want to highlight the suggestion that Dr. Seal shared with how to not defend or not to have minoritized people have to defend their position. There's nothing to defend. The equity work really involves the person who is saying these deficit-based things their work is to go through the process. Instead of responding with a pushback, simply ask a question to reframe. Let them do the work. Let them see in a different way. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine.